This morning we are going to take a little time to do some theological work. Uh, we need to do this occasionally throughout, especially epistles, but really even all of Scripture, that we, as we go verse by verse, we recognize that there are certain things that need to be addressed uh, and theologically, and we're going to be doing that today to kind of lay out a canvas, and I use that term very deliberately, a very good canvas. Uh, you can be a wonderful artist and paint beautiful things, but if your canvas isn't very good, all the work you put into it is not going to last and endure, and it's not going to be able to be appreciated. And so if I choose a poor canvas to put this wonderful uh, pictorial information upon, uh, then it will deteriorate and dissolve and be of little value. And if we want enduring value, if we want to have that which can be learned from, appreciated from, we need to have the proper canvas. And in theological circles, there are some underlying truths that must be present if everything we put on top of those is correct and is of value. And so while we can say, well, we say the same words as this other person and we paint the same pictures as this other group, um, but then we are putting them on two separate canvases, hopefully we recognize that there is a, uh, there is a, a great difference between those. And so we have to occasionally, uh, when God's word demands it, to look at some underlying issues that need to be addressed that will really impact a large portion of Scripture. And in this case, most of the first chapter of Peter. And even as we go forward, Peter is going to, in this book, deal with a lot, uh, deal quite frequently with false teachers. It's something he just has to do. Remember, we talked last week that we're going to move from exhortation to warning. And that warning is going to involve false teachers. And we can speculate as to what exactly the false teachers were teaching that Peter was concerned about. Uh, and we're going to address that as we get to those passages. But as an underlying truth, uh, it doesn't really matter the extent we need to identify false teaching for what it is. And one of the means by doing that is to lay out this canvas, this backdrop theologically, so that we can say, well, wherever we go from here on, if our foundation is wrong, if our canvas is torn and shredded and of, of poor weave, whatever it is, that we recognize whatever we put on that is not going to improve it. And uh, we, we would like to think that that's all we need to do is just put a fresh coat of paint on it and somehow it's restored, and that's just not the case if the canvas is bad. Uh, one of the movies our family enjoys growing is uh, a Doris Day movie. And in this movie, uh, it's Calamity Jane. We go to their little cabin in the woods, and there's holes in the door and cracks and everything out, and all it needs is a woman's touch. And so they slap some paint on it, and the next scene, it is a, all the wood has been restored by just painting it a little bit. And there's no cracks in it and all. And I'm like, I hate to tell you that takes a man's touch to put, rebuild the door. Because somebody rebuilt and put a new door on there that didn't get restored by a coat of paint. And so we can paint over these things and think, well, somehow we can have fellowship. But when the underlying canvas is rotted, we have to acknowledge it. That there is the devaluation of everything you put upon it. 
And so we need to make sure our foundation is sure and our canvas is good. And so that's what we're going to be doing this morning in looking at several passages here in chapter 1, kind of an overview of this chapter. Uh, we're going to certainly look into it specifically verse by verse, as is my custom. But today we're going to be kind of jumping around a little bit in 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at a theme that you've heard frequently that needs to be addressed simply because of the approach of others to this passage that I think is skewed and not inconsistent with all of God's word. So we're going to pick up in verse 1, and then I'm going to, um, just because it's uh, jumping into another sentence, I don't want to jump in the middle of it, we're going to read through uh, verse 4, and then we're going to jump ahead to verse 10 and 11. So read with me, if you will, if for, in your Bibles. Simon Peter, bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And now we'll jump over to verse 10. It says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We come into verse 1 and we are immediately confronted with something, uh, a word that if in your Bible probably has some letters and numbers around it telling you to cross-reference it or some other possibilities. And that word is the word obtained, that we have obtained like precious faith with us. There are a group of individuals that Peter's writing to uh, that he distinguishes differently from us, he calls them you, that you have obtained uh, they, those, I'm sorry, those who have obtained like precious faith with us. And so there's definitely a distinction there that is made, and so we have to ask our question, who is us, and who is the whom have obtained like precious faith? We're going to get into that shortly, but let's bore down on a single word here for a moment, and that is the word obtain. The reason you have numbers and letters around that is because it's a very strange word to use in this sentence. And so you'll see that uh, probably if you have marginal notes or something, a center column or bottom notes, you'll have something that says, or it could be you have received like precious faith. And you might say, well, is there a big difference between obtaining something and receiving something? And uh, to tell you the truth, it could be construed to be uh, similar, certainly, at the end of the sentence, you certainly are the possessor of it. The question is, how did that occur? How did you become the possessor of a faith identical to and just as valuable as the faith of Peter and those who Peter counts around him, the us? How did we receive that faith? And that is the question. Um, and, or obtain it. Did we receive it or did we obtain it? How are we become possessors of it? How is it that that faith came to us in addition to them? And again, the Greek word here is used 
four, three, four places overall, three other places in God's Word. And, and you would probably never identify those places without some help from Greek scholars who say, oh, well, this is the same word as this. And, and we could go to those, um, but they're not going to help you a lot um, because it's, uh, you, in fact, you probably talked about one during Sunday school this morning for the adults when you were talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ of what happened to the garment that Jesus was wearing. Okay, you all are pretty well versed in God's word. Uh, what happened to the garment that Christ was wearing? Well, uh, they were going to tear it apart and split it among them, and they decided, no, we are going to cast lots, and whoever the lot falls on will get the whole garment. And yes, that is the Greek word that's used here. You say, which Greek word? For casting lots. What an odd word for Peter to use. And so you can kind of think back and say, well, there's another place in Luke there where they cast lots in John and uh, with the soldiers and then also uh, in Acts. And so we have it again used in Acts chapter 1. Remember, they had to replace Judas Iscariot. And so let's go to the Acts one. I'm going to pick on that one. Maybe a little uh, farther along than you're thinking. Um, in Acts chapter 1, same word is used. So let's look at that. Because this one actually uses the same term that we're dealing with here. The other two do not. They use the casting of lots. So let's pick up verse 16. It says, Men and brethren, the scriptures had been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. And that word obtained is the same word we're dealing with in 1 Peter. Interesting that this speech is by a guy named Peter in verse 15. So this is a word that Peter is accustomed to using. And some have said, well, maybe this word they used in an a odd way in Galilee uh, among fishermen. Uh, but the concept here is pretty, that he threw his lot in with us, that he was numbered among us. Now, when we look at this, we can say, can we do the same thing? Can we come into this and say, well, is it obtained or is it received? He was numbered with us and obtained or received a part in this space. What's fascinating is that in my Bible, there are no numbers or letters around this word. It just says obtained. Without question. Without alternatives. Even though it's the same description of casting lots. He tossed his, his lot was tossed in with, the, with our ministry. And so I wanted to share this because of the, now you can see why we're dealing with it now because we don't have any question that it's obtained in Acts chapter 1, but we do when we get to 2 Peter chapter 1. And my, in my mind, I'm like, well, why? Why is one notated that it could be something, a different word, and the other one is not? That inconsistency always bothers me. And then why is it completely translated differently in two other places in the Gospels? And why aren't we talking about what it literally means? And we again come to a theological framework that is sought to be supported here. Now in our modern translations, 
And there are dozens. And so I don't claim to be reviewing all these translations. I don't have them. I'm not really up to date on a lot of them. And so I just go and I just put it in and, and Bible Hub brings up every translation and I go through them all. Boom, 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 boom. And so there are dozens. And I'm just looking at one word. Are they using word obtained? Are they using word received? It's pretty much a 50-50 thing. I looked this up last night. And it's pretty much 50-50. Uh, some of them are going to use received. Some of them are going to use obtained uh, here uh, in terms of that. And you might say, well, this is a very subtle difference. And yes, it is very subtle. But it has some long-term ramifications uh, when, you, you, when you change very small degrees, it looks very small at the beginning of the angle, right? What happens when you project that angle out farther? It becomes more and more substantial as you go. Just that one degree difference way back here becomes enormous differences way out there. And so we want to be careful in these small degrees early on. And so what is the difference between obtain, something that I have... Uh, participated in the process of its acquisition. And so certainly at the end of this, we have our possessors. It's how did we get that possession? Because Peter says, listen, it came to you, it fell upon you, same as it has for us. And again, this is a word Peter is familiar with. He has already used it in speech in Acts chapter 1. What does he mean by that? When we look to Judas, he says, listen, he's already partaken in our ministry. He has already uh, had a part that he participated in. He went out in the two-by-two two to share the gospel with the villages around Galilee. He was out there. He was one of those 12 who went out two-by-two two and shared the gospel and did Tremendous things. People were healed. Demons were cast out. And they came back with these glowing reports. Judas obtained a part of that ministry. He participated in it. And the word obtained is a little bit different than receive. Received is a much more passive word. It is something that came upon me. It fell upon me. And I'm not going to deny that there is an aspect of casting lots that... Um, is there and entailed in there, but it is not entirely passive. This word, the concept of casting lots, is that we're all putting our lot in and seeing where it falls compared to others. And so Judas is being contrasted. He had his lot in this ministry. He put his marker in there and was part of what we were doing. He joined it. And, you, and, and that's why, because we don't, wanna, we don't question that uh, doctrinally, and so we use the word obtained rather than received. He wasn't passively forced into this. It didn't occur to him apart from his will. It was not something, certainly, that God did ordain it in, in, in the sense of he prophesied it, and therefore there was going to be one, and Jesus says that. It's going to be what the prophets declare that he who shares my cup will betray me. And woe to him, whoever it is. That, and so we might say, well, it was his destiny. Well, it says he cast his lot in there. He placed it there. He was a participant, and that's why we use the word obtain. We don't use the word received, because received implies that we are the passive participant. We are passively there, just having it put upon us. 
Are we the passive instruments of faith or active instruments of faith? And that is what is determined by either the word using the word obtain or using the word received. Are we passive or active in the process of this acquiring of the faith that Peter talks about that is of equal value of like precious faith as the one that he received? And so we, we come to this and we see how it can take two very divergent views based upon how you want to use this. If we make ourselves the passive recipients, then you might as well sit down and just wait for God to do it to you because you don't have any obligation to be engaged in this process. And this is the Calvinist model. Whether they acknowledge it or not, whether their activity and all the paint they throw on this canvas shows it or not, the fact is, is the canvas they are working on is a canvas uh, where God has full responsibility for all of it, and you have zero responsibility to any of it. You do not, you have to respond, but you, can, but you can't respond unless he enables you to respond. And thus it is fully God that will, that without your, your really, uh, your cooperation even really, because he will in, work in you in such a way to make you a new person so that now you can have the faith to believe. And that is how they interpret this passage. And that's why they prefer the word received. It would be nice if they just threw in their under all the numbers, I'd think, oh, down here there's going to say something about casting lots, but it doesn't. And you would have never made the connection out of this verse to that concept of the casting of lots. Now, we might say, well, this kind of makes it sound random. And that's because we have a Western scientific view of the casting of lots that has extracted the work of God from the process. This is not the view of the scriptures, of the people of biblical times. And that's why um, when we get down and, and, and Peter and the, the, uh, the, the ten other disciples are there, they're going, listen, we need to replace Judas um, and so they didn't just randomly go out there and pick someone to replace Judas, did they? They said, okay, we have a certain qualification list. Here we go. They need to have been with us. They need to have heard him. They need to have seen it. Uh, they, from the beginning, from the baptism on, they need to be witnesses of this. They had two individuals that qualified. Now, how do we pick between these two? And it says they, they chose lots. Interesting that it's different verbiage than this word of Judas. You see, their, their conclusion is that God needs to direct us in terms of which of these two options we need to follow. And much like Jonah on the boat, you know, cast lots, it's always going to follow me. It doesn't matter how many times you do it, it's all, I know what the probability is. But this is beyond probability because we're dealing with the God of all the heavens. It will always fall on me. Just, okay, that's yes, my fault. <laughs> it will always be my fault. Why? Because it is my fault. 
Because I'm the one running away from the one true and living God who is actively engaged in the activities of men. And so we can use this. And in fact, when we look at back into the uh, work of Joshua, we see, well, how did each nation get their territory? It was by lot, it says. That's literally what it's, how they devised it. So they set out the boundaries, and this fell. This, these lines, this boundary fell upon this tribe. This boundary fell upon this tribe. Uh, does that mean they were not engaged in the process? Oh, they were very much engaged in the process. And in fact, somewhere along the process, one of them says, oh, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, that's right. God's word had this promise to you. Now that's going to affect how we lay out the lots. And in fact, we still use that term for property. To this day, we still use a biblical idea, and so we divided our property into five lots. That's what the government calls them. This is our lot. Does that mean it was random? No, it was very thoughtful. We are very engaged in the process. Boy, were we ever engaged in the process. And, but um, now that's the lot. It is the conclusion. It is that we all participate in together. And what Peter is trying to describe is this whole concept and by using this word, that certainly the providence of God is an element of that, but also the participation of man. And we come to this decision, this, this condition of man, where we are in this lot, we are in this place, the place where we belong. But to but to say it has nothing to do with our own will is not implied in this word whatsoever, nor the concept of randomness is implied here. Turn with me to the book of Psalm, chapter 16. And this I'm very excited about. My wife knows it. it just came to me last night. I had to get up out of bed and go look it up. And that means Mr. Rick has no idea it's coming. Psalm, chapter 16. And yes, sermons are dynamic like that. I might have the schedule for several weeks, but that doesn't mean that the sermon's ready. Oh, let's read the whole psalm. I was going to pick, it's only 11 verses. A victim of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Sheol nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so tucked in the middle of this psalm here, 
we find these statements, and I want you to notice the premise of these statements. That is what, what comes before them. It says, I will trust in the Lord. The whole psalm begins there. I'm going to trust in the Lord. Well, what is the Lord involved? Well, the Lord is my goodness, because uh, my, my, you are the Lord. My goodness is nothing. Uh, all the things they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight, is what God's statement is. And yet we find that, and so then a renewed commitment in verse 4, I will not follow after the false gods. I will persist in following the one true and living God. And then in response now to his trusting in the Lord, we have this description of his lot. And that lot is his inheritance. Do you notice that? The connection of the concept that this has fallen on me, Okay, it's not accidental. It has fallen upon me. Why do I have such a good inheritance that has fallen upon me? Well, it's because we have a wonderful God who has an incredibly rich response to those who will trust in him. You cannot extract these verses out of this chapter and conclude that, well, the author was just, David was just sitting there and it just, bam, fell on him. And that he was the passive recipient of all this. No, he says, I trust in the Lord. I have purposed not to follow after false gods. And now, look at what has happened. I have this inheritance. The portion of my inheritance in my cup is the Lord's. The Lord has granted this to me. And so we talk about it being God's grace, and rightly so. It is not something I deserve, but it waits for us to receive it by faith with this declaration, I trust in the Lord, I will not follow after other gods. It is a cooperative that is initiated by God, waits for our response, and that is completed by God. And so the lot is ready to be fallen. God had already was prepared to grant an inheritance to whoever would meet that condition. Always. And if you think that David was God's first choice, you haven't read quite enough of the Bible. Because in Samuel we find that God says something very peculiar to a guy named Saul, King Saul, it says, if you had, if you had believed, if you had obeyed, if you had followed my word faithfully, I would have granted the kingdom to your household forever. Totally different tribe than David. And David recognizes this. I wasn't God's first choice. I was God's second choice. And I was in weighed out. And I was kind of in jeopardy. God was measuring me. Do you ever wonder who God's first choice before Abraham might have been? We don't have anything recorded in God's word. That doesn't mean he didn't. We just know that Abraham did respond. We don't really know how many people didn't respond. And God puts Abram through all these tests and he passes them fairly well, decently enough. God is, is pleased sufficiently. And then we have an Abrahamic covenant come on the scene. 
To say that Abraham had nothing to do with that and that he was the passive recipient of this election of God is foolishness. It is nowhere declared that way. David's kingship is nowhere declared that way. Here, David is not stating that. He says, I've trusted in the Lord. I refuse to go after other gods. And now this is what God has put upon me as an inheritance. It has fallen. This is now my lot. These are my boundaries. The lines have fallen. And it might sound to our Western ears like it's random or providential alone, but that is not how this concept and terminology was understood by biblical characters, by their cultures. All the way from Abraham, all the way through the kingdom period, all the way into the prophetic period with Jonah, all the way into the New Testament. And so Peter is using a term and a concept that we need to have a full understanding of. What was his idea of how faith, this like precious faith, got to us? And it's not that you are simply there as a passive recipient. It is a provided certainly. So let's look at how it's provided now that we've gotten the word obtained down, right? We've gotten the word obtained down. And... And so it's not uh, that the righteousness of God uh, is giving you faith. It is that it is obtained by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the first provision is God. It is Jesus' righteousness that gives us an opportunity to be involved in this process. It is his provision and it's his righteous provision that we are responding to by which we are now possessors of a very precious faith. It is no second class, as we talked about last week. There's a unity in the body of Christ. And so we find that how did we get that? Well, it comes by the righteousness of Christ. Now, the righteousness of Christ is not what is being used to say, by God's righteousness, he decides that you will be saved and they won't be. That is not what is being stated here. <clears throat> okay? Let's go down to verse 3. <clears throat> We're going to see another word that they like to use, or misuse, I should say. In verse 3, as divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And again, their focus, their canvas, it, because they're on a canvas of, of Calvinism, uh, their canvas demands that the glory and virtue and this calling is irresistible, and therefore it is, if we rob God of that at all, that we're robbing him of his glory and virtue. But that's not what the, is communicating here at all, as we're going to see here shortly. But let's go ahead and look at this passage, this part of the passage now. And it says that it, it's really not um, talking about being saved, it's really talking about all things that pertain to life and godliness that he has given to those who already believe. Do you see that? Now the us is not Peter and his crowd. Now the us is Peter, his crowd, and the rest who have like precious faith. Now we have gone from them and me to us. We've made one group out of two because we all have the same precious faith. And so now, to all of us, and we talked about all that last week, 
uh, we are given power that we need, and again, this is based upon the knowledge of Christ, which is repeated in verse 2 as well as in verse 3, through the knowledge of him. Now again, do you assume that knowledge to be uh, uh, passively received? That somehow God is going to come in and insert his knowledge, knowledge of him, into your brain, into your intellect. Is he just going to come along and make you know everything there is in God's word? Of course not. We understand that we are to grow in the knowledge of him, that we are dependent upon pastor teachers in Ephesians, that we might grow in unity of our faith and knowledge of him, that we are supposed to participate in this process. That our calling, who does God call to life and godliness? He calls all those who believe. The calling here is not called to salvation. It is we are called to life and godliness. That's what the references that if you trust in Jesus Christ, he has called you as he has called every believer to be, to walk in life and godliness. Not by our own power, not by our own intelligence, not by our own will, um, but by his glory and virtue. So the source of our faith in verse 1 is the righteousness of Christ. That righteousness was evidenced by the resurrection. That his sacrifice was sufficient. It was a righteous sacrifice. He knew no sin, so therefore he died for others. It was substitutionary. Now, uh, my godly walk, again, is also not by my own making. I still have to choose to participate in it, though, don't I? And so I have to increase my knowledge of God so that it will produce a godly life, and, but it's not something I will take pride in because it's by his glory and his virtue. Again, the concept of virtue is connected to righteousness that I'm trying to live up to the standard of Jesus Christ. He becomes my example. It is his virtue that overflows me. It is not my own personal uh, commitment to virtue, it is that I am participating in, because I know God, I know his word, I know Jesus Christ, that I'm going to walk a different life, I'm going to walk in godliness, and it will not even, that won't even be to my glory, because it's based upon his virtue, and so it goes to his glory. All the glory goes to him, because it's derived from him. He has shared his glory with us. What an awesome condition we are. We are called, we are chosen, we are granted our faith in terms of, of our, our inheritance. <clears throat> we are called to this inheritance. We are, we are brought into this family uh, not by our own merits, but by the merits of Jesus Christ. His righteousness, his glory, his virtue. And I know we use certain words here, that others have contrived to mean that, well, um, God brings himself glory by choosing to save some and not all. How? How does that bring him glory? I ask the question again and again, and their answer is, well, we don't know, and it's not right to ask. That is honestly their answer. Oh, they put a lot of other verbiage around it. 
but it's, it's, we don't know, and it's wrong to ask. You should just be thankful that you were, that it did bring him glory to save you, and not your neighbor, not your sibling, not your spouse, not your parents. And I say, how? How does that bring him glory? We would consider that criminal. If I have the capacity to save 10 and I save three and say, aren't you three thankful? that I, and they go, why didn't you save the other ones? You could have. You had 10 life vests. Why didn't you throw them all out there? Well, you should just, don't ask that. Just be thankful I throw three. And yet that's the argument they use towards God. And my question is, how does that bring him glory? No, I believe God's word that it says that God died for all men and he wants all men to come to repentance, that it was for the whole world that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice and he calls all men everywhere, repent and come to me. And having come to me, that all who come to him will be received and will be granted an equal inheritance. And almost all the passages about election, if not all of them, deal with this whole concept of what you get once you are a believer. What God has waiting in store for you, what he has chosen to be your salvation, the extent and the breadth and the width of it uh, for all who believe. Not who will get it, what you will get should you trust in him. Well, now we have to press on. So we've tried to settle verse 1, settle verse 3, and now the one that, that is just... I don't know how you can avoid this nail in the coffin of, of their torn and rotted canvas is verse 10. For God's word declares, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. We haven't studied the intermittent verses between verse 3 and 10 where he talks about adding to your faith and a whole list. We're going to spend weeks through going through that. Um, but we're jumping to kind of the end of the story so we get a good handle on this theologically of what the backdrop should be. We are not only called to obtain like precious faith, that is to seek its acquiry, to bring that as to make it our lot. Lord, I trust in you. I will follow after no other gods. And now this lot has fallen on me. Because God, who made the provision before I made the declaration, now is able, by my declaration, by my faith declaration, to place it upon me. So Peter says here, um, and in fact, for many verses, 12 and following, he's saying, for this reason, I'm going to keep reminding you because that is not a singular act, but a continual act. Making that declaration, I'll trust in the Lord and I'll not fall after other gods of Psalm 16 is not a singular declaration that needs to be in your life. It is a 
perpetual declaration that needs to be in your life. You need to be waking up every morning, reminding yourself of that. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, bedtime, you need to be reminding yourself that I will trust in the Lord. I will not follow after these other gods. And that's what Peter is essentially saying here. He says, listen, I'm writing this so that you are even more diligent. And I have to ask the question, even more than what? Because by the Calvinist model, there is nothing to be more diligent about because you were never diligent to begin with. It fell on you. You were the passive recipient. You had nothing to do with it. Don't rob God of glory by claiming any part in it. What a horrific position to be. What a rotted, crumpled up piece of paper to paint your masterpiece on of God's sacrifice. Oh no. We have to be even more diligent, which means that there was some diligence at the beginning. And now he wants us not to become lax, but to become even more active in this expression and this engagement with God in our faith. That it's not, I have this wonderful experience with God, I got saved, I got baptized, I've committed my life to him, I'm, I'm focused, I'm, and now I can just coast my way right into glory and my inheritance. No. You made this commitment here, I'll trust in the Lord, and now you have to live out those words for the rest of your life. You have to be more diligent as you go. You have to take greater steps. You have to be strengthened. You have to have more knowledge. You have to be studied. That means you have to study to get more knowledge. You have to be active. You have to be engaged. You be more. He doesn't say, God needs to just give you more grace. Just wait for the Lord to dump it on you, and then you'll be more spiritual, more holy, more godly. He doesn't say that. Because certainly, if the origination of our faith we had nothing to do with, and that it was all God, and we were just the passive recipients of his election, then certainly the preservation of it is also his, right? Completely his. It's his responsibility to keep me from going to hell. Correct? Is that correct or not? Yes, it, it has to be. If he initiated it and we had no part in it, then we are still robbing him of glory if we do any work within it to establish ourselves in the faith. And so if he doesn't put a hook in your mouth and pull you to church every day to hear his word, then that's his fault, right? Even on a day like this, where it really did take a hook. Because for some reason, no, I know exactly the reason. The reason is because we hate God, that we decide that the Lord's Day is the best day to make it hard for people to get up in the morning. You don't think that was by accident? Why couldn't it be done on Friday night? Saturday morning. Why not Sunday night get you up for work? Oh no, we can't let you be late for work. Worship, yes, but not work. Yeah, so that's purposeful. But yeah, are we waiting on God to make me go to church, to make me be good? Because I'm a passive recipient. No. Peter says, you have to be even more diligent 
than you were at the beginning of your faith to make sure the end of your faith results in you being in heaven. Now, this is going to fly in the face of what we believe and because we overemphasize eternal security and again we extract from eternal security human responsibility. This is a cooperative that we have. This is a covenant relationship you have with God. That means that you have a responsibility towards it. God will always be faithful and keep his promises. But those promises I find are conditional. He's faithful, but Israel had a powerful covenant, but they broke it over and over and over. Boy, was he patient with them. And proved to them his power and his glory. His ver- I mean, he proved it all and his patience. And they lost. Many crossed the Red Sea and never got to the promised land, right? I don't want to be one of those, do you? So, Peter doesn't want you to be one of those either. So he says, be even more diligent. And then here's those two favorite words. To make your call and election sure. What? You mean I was diligent in the beginning to to be numbered among the elect, to be numbered among the call? Yes, you had to respond by faith to God. You had to direct your faith to him. And it's really, God didn't create this faith. Um, He gave it to all men. And if you wonder that other people don't have faith, if you think they don't have faith, you haven't been paying attention to them at all. I mean, they believe crazy things. I mean, they paint a face on a rock. They don't even paint a face. They paint a design on a rock, set it down, and pray to it. Think about how much faith that has. Oh, great rock that will control the weather now that I've painted on you. That's what the Hindus are doing. These people are crazy enough to follow one man's writing that is unsubstantiated in every category. A debauched man, no less. And so, and, and so we call them cults because they go after this individual. And so whether you want to go after Joseph Smith and call, you a, call, call, <laughs> call yourself a Mormon, whether you want to go after the Watchtower and call yourself Joel's Witness, whether you want to go after uh, Mrs. Ellen White and call yourself a Seventh-day Adventist, pick your poison because they all have a lot more faith than most of us. Because they're following after people. You know how foolish that is? You know how many of Mrs. White's prophecies didn't come true? All of them. Because she's dead and Jesus isn't here. He hasn't come back. She prophesies his return multiple times. And by the way, this week, I was watching a video of a guy prophesying. You know what he said? God showed him a vision that before this was 27, six days ago, that in 30 days, President Trump was going to be in the White House. You know how many followers he has? Five hundred thousand. 
And that was the first time I ever looked at his thing. I was like, oh, President Trump's going to be in the White House. Got two more days. I mean, what's going to happen in the next 48 hours? But something's going to happen. He said within 30 days is what he said. But that was back in February. And people are flocking to believe in that. You read through the comments, no one says, you know, in 28 days, we're going to have to come stone you to death. Two days, if you're wrong. Oh, no, they flock to it. People have great faith. Just poorly directed. God has granted all men the capacity of faith. I believe it's part of our image bearing that we have this. But so we talk about this participating of directing our faith, of, 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 grant, of, of responding to God's provision and God's revelation, and by saying, I'm going to trust not in these other gods, I'm going to trust in you, the Lord, the one true and living God. And not just once, but I'm going to be even more diligent to make my call and election sure and please notice, if you do these things, you will never stumble, is his statement. And so we come to this and we recognize this is a, this is a very powerful canvas. This is a principle I see consistently throughout God's word. God makes a provision, waits for man's response. Man responds, God floods him with blessing, with his grace, and then says, okay, you want to persist in that? You keep walking in my ways and I'll keep blessing you. You, you wander off that way, you're going to lose that blessing. And we see it happen over and over and over again. We have great examples who, of people that didn't stumble, Though they came across great opposition, guys like Joseph, guys like Daniel, guys like that, we have those who did stumble and corrected themselves like David. He got into sin occasionally. Others like that. We have others who did really well and then stumble, stumble, stumble at the end like Solomon who let women pull his heart away from the Lord had divided allegiances. Um, he just wasn't diligent at the end. He's calling us to be more diligent that we might make our calling election sure. Was Solomon beloved of God? Yes. That's why his, his name is Jedediah. God loved him. Before he was, when he was born, at birth, God loved him. But at the end, what did God have to do? I have to tear the kingdom away from your kids. Because you didn't follow after him with all your heart, all your days. Peter knows what he's talking about here. You have to be even more diligent today than you were yesterday to make sure your calling and election is sure. And that is not about your, your salvation. It's really about your election. It really has to do with your inheritance. If you want to enjoy the blessings of your salvation, we're not talking about losing your salvation, but all the blessings of your salvation, then you're going to have to do these things that we're going to be studying in First Peter 1, or Second Peter 1. You're going to have to do them. You want to secure the blessings of your salvation, not only today, but into eternity, because remember, we're going to move from the Christian walk in this book to the apocalypse, to the end of all things, to your inheritance. And while you are called to that inheritance, you are chosen to that inheritance, you can disqualify yourself from much of it. 
I am convinced there is very serious reasons why Jesus Christ has to wipe away tears when people arrive in heaven. Because you don't wipe away tears of joy. You wipe away tears of sorrow. That your arrival in heaven may be a sorrowful arrival because you realized, I really should have been more diligent to enjoy the blessings of my salvation more. You've heard me reference Dante's Inferno over the years several times, and certainly there are, that I, I agree that there are different levels of that. I believe in that. Um, there's evidence in God's word toward that direction. What we often don't understand is that in many ways there's that same in heaven. And so we teach about crowns and things like that and about the, the places we are in heaven. And when, when uh, James and John's mom put them up to ask, I want to be your right hand, left hand, the kingdom of heaven, um, Jesus Christ didn't say, there's no right hand or left hand in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ didn't tell them that, did he? What did he tell them? It's up to the Father who sits at my right hand or left hand. And if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, what? If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, I thought we were all equal in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, learn to be the servant of all. Peter's going to help you learn to be the servant of all. Because just like there are degrees in, in hell, I believe there are degrees in heaven. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you want to be near that throne room, learn to be the servant of all. Give your life. Be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Everyone that tells you you have nothing to do with your election, take them to this verse and say, explain that. If I had nothing to do with it, how can I make it sure by doing things? Because God gives these blessings based upon obedience, but their provision is based upon his grace. And really, even when we obey everything, we are unprofitable servants and only know what is our duty to do, right? Luke tells us that. That's our response. So we recognize that even then I don't really deserve it because I didn't deserve the beginning. And I certainly don't deserve the end. But God calls me, has chosen me to be a participant in this, and I choose to trust in the Lord with all my heart. And I will not follow after these false gods. So that the lines, the inheritance, my lot is established in pleasant places. Eventually, you'll be glad even if you're in the basement of heaven. <laughs> okay. I don't know if there's a basement in New Jerusalem. Um, if you're in the far corner of the, you know, next to like the 12th gate of Pearl, there going into heaven, you'll eventually be glad you're there. But when you first arrive, you'll say, oh man, I screwed up so bad. What was I thinking? I will never be great here. For I never declare God in my life. I was not diligent to do the things that please God. I did the things that pleased me. 
that pleased the world, that pleased Satan. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Serve the least these brethren. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for this instruction, and we thank you for the clarity of your word and the consistency of it from cover to cover. And Lord, we see others that will take these precious truths and apply them, oh, with great mastery, but really with great deceit upon a canvas that makes you evil, criminal even, and rob you truly of your glory and rob man of his responsibility before you. Lord, we are not of that ilk, and we pray that you might instruct us and challenge us as you have already this morning they might continue to grow in our knowledge of you they might add to our faith daily we might be the more diligent not less diligent because we think we have it all secured lord help us to serve you in these perilous times with our eyes stayed upon your son jesus christ we thank you for his righteousness his glory his virtue that we are certainly the benefactors of. That we could share in the same valuable faith of those who walked with you on this earth. And we look forward to being in your presence that day. And until that day, Lord, find us faithful. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.